Namaste. This is Deepali Kulkarni, HF's Director of Human Rights. I'm here today with Yashika Singh, the head of the religion department at the South African Broadcasting Corporation. She's here today to talk to us about the civil unrest that has unfolded in South Africa for the past few weeks. Thanks so much for joining us, Yashika. Thank you very much. Uh, I really appreciate being here and I would like to thank you, Dipali, and the Hindu American Foundation for uh, actually giving us this opportunity to share our thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. So the situation on the ground is obviously complex. It's unfolding. Um, so I just like to jump into it. What events led to the recent civil unrest in South Africa? So following the Constitutional Court judgment on the 29th of June that found former President Jacob Zuma guilty of contempt of court and sentenced him to 15 months in prison in KwaZulu-Natal, both Gauteng and KwaZulu-Natal slowly slipped into a state of anarchy. And the, the former president, Jacob Zuma, has been extremely popular and is extremely popular amongst the Zulu-speaking South Africans. Now, in order for anyone to understand South Africa, which is a new democracy, it achieved its democracy in 1994 and is a growing democracy uh, in the country. It, has, it prides itself as one of the most progressive constitutions in the world. But I think the constitution has been severely tested with the unrest that happened uh, last week. I think it, uh, what has, uh, in, the, in the process, uh, this, it's a multi-layered uh, state of affairs that has occurred in the country because the displays of unrest in the coastal province were directly linked to the incarceration and civil disorder quickly changed into widespread acts of looting and violence leading to bloodshed. So when the protests took place in South Africa from the 9th to the 17th of July in response to um, the arrest of former Jacob Zuma, but it also triggered wider rioting and looting fueled by a range of issues. Now, notwithstanding the fact that South Africa is going through the most difficult time with the COVID-19 situation, we've had huge job losses. There's massive economic inequalities and low investment into small and big businesses in the country. So the riots actually triggered, um, it was literally like um, the icing on, on a cake because it was that one degree that changed uh, the face of the country. And you know, it has been reported wildly, widely in the world that South Africa sits, you know, as the one of the most unequal societies in the world. More than 50% of the population live in abject poverty. So despite notable gains in poverty a reduction, you know, in post-apartheid South Africa, uh, they, we still have huge issues between the, uh, the gaps between uh, the rich and the poor. So essentially, uh, former President Zuma was arrested um, on June 29th for defying, you know, the court um, because there were corruption charges brought against him and he wasn't really responding to the court. Um, So what were the protesters who turned to rioters hoping to accomplish um, by protesting and then rioting? So there are different, um, you know, uh, points of view that has come across in the last few days. First of all, there is this popularity with Jacob Zuma. He's always had 
the, you know, the hearts and minds of the very, very poor for the longest time. But not that he did much. Uh, he was well known in the ANC. He was a great cadre. And he was uh, also part of, uh, you know, the, the liberation movement. He was given that uh, space of galvanizing the the uh, the army on Contoesizwe. Uh, prior to them becoming part of the SANDF. So he holds a, a, a you know, huge esteem amongst the followers. However, uh, within the tribal space in South Africa, the Zulu uh, you know, uh, uh, tradition is well known. They were warriors once upon a time, uh, not necessarily workers. And, and, and that is important to understand because when the Indians arrived in this country in 1860, in fact, they arrived a little before that, they came to work in the sugarcane plantation under the British. And, the, and why? Because the British were not able to encourage the Zulu people to work on this plantation. Encourage is very, very, very politely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, the British, you know, of course, ruled uh, in, in uh, you know, the whole colonial masters that rule India, they rule South Africa, they rule Mauritius. So it was, of course, slavery at, at every level. Uh, even the term indenture was just a new word for, for the term slavery because the Slavery Act was abolished just before that. So, um, but they continued, you know, uh, punishing and, uh, you know, destroying lives, uh, thousands and thousands of lives. So when they came into this continent, the same thing happened. So the Zulu tradition prides itself on a very rich royal uh, uh, lineage. Um, you know, uh, there's wonderful stories of uh, the great King Shaka etc. And uh, so through that passage of time, for them to be subjugated under the British was, was a huge insult. For them to be first subjugated by the apartheid government was even worse. And one must understand the psyche of poor people around the globe. Uh, you know, uh, they, they, there's a continuation and it will continue for generations to come until significant changes happen. It happened in, uh, you know, when India had to reclaim itself from the British. It didn't, uh, you know, its independence, whilst it achieved itself in 1949, it still could not achieve uh, equality comes um, economic growth. So there's a major, uh, you know, uh, uh, there's huge parallels that one can look at. And so South Africa saw itself as part and parcel of, of, of a growing, um, you know, country like India, they parallel themselves uh, at, at the start of our liberation movement with countries, uh, you know, that achieved its freedom just like India. And in fact, India was a country that supported the liberation movement. At that time, you know, uh, South African uh, soldiers trained India as well. So there's this uh, strong, you know, alliance uh, to, to India in that sense, but also People like Jacob Zuma held that trust with the masses. Unfortunately, because of the illiteracy rate and the poverty rate in this country, they were easily bought. And the nature of corruption is a huge problem in the country. Not only was did we see violence, burglary, and malicious damage to property, as was reported in parts of KwaZulu-Natal, with at least 28 people being arrested, you know, and uh, the highways being blocked at the, uh, in, the, in the last few days. The, the issue was this kind of incentive 
if you do something, you know, to, to, and galvanize and go and take from others, you will then be compensated for it. And now these, uh, uh, you know, uh, it's being revealed now after a week uh, of the strike where there's still investigation that's going to be done. We obviously don't have all the answers. But critically, one needs to know that uh, the, the influence of, the, uh, of people in power has largely impacted the poorest of the poor. And, uh, you know, as I've said, we, we, we are going through mass corruption with the, with the current ANC government as well. Wow. Well, a lot of history to unpack there. But bringing it back to the events of recent weeks, um, President, uh, former President Zuma was, um, you know, taken in on June 29th, but the violence really escalated in the past week. So what happened in between June 29th and this escalation of violence? Was it protesting that slowly gained uh, momentum or was there some instigation that transformed the protesting into something else? Yes. So he was, uh, uh, before he was taken into custody, you see, he declined to testify at the Zonda Commission. And uh, commissions are always set up in a democracy to look at various issues that the country goes through. And this particular one was set up uh, to, do, to look at the areas of mass corruption in South Africa. And there was an inquiry into allegations of corruption when he was, uh, you know, in his term of president uh, between 2009 to 2018. So when he, um, he uh, when he was first uh, 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 deemed to be arrested, the police went to take him in, and they refused to go because they were stopped by protesters in Nkandla, that is where his residence were. So we saw immediately uh, the failure of the police to actually take him in. So there was this kind of period of lull. Uh, where there was a whole lot of discussion, it, you know, the media was in a flurry that he was not able, you know, able to be taken in by the police. And what we saw, even in social media, was shocking. There were cars that had AK-47s, uh, you know, rifles, etc., that actually barricaded the the area of where he lived. So suddenly, people started thinking, but, you know, what is happening? You know, why is he being protected to this level uh, that he that he wouldn't actually go uh, into jail? So by the time when he was actually, uh, you know, taken to jail, it was um, uh, the 8th of July. And then from the 9th of July with uh, with him, when pictures of him in jail was um, uh, spread across social media, uh, it immediately, you know, tore into the hearts of, 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 of his followers because they wouldn't want to see the state president in orange overall. And so it was this kind of, uh, you know, um, um, uh, you know, you know, when your hero is devalued, when you put up a hero and he's supposed to be the, the most important figure in your life, you know, that that you would look up to him at, at every level is suddenly defiled, is brought to this level, according to the masses, they, there was rage, there was absolute rage. And immediately there was galvanizing and mobilization that was happening. So similar to the mobilization that was happening pre-94 before democracy, this type of 
galvanization was happening now, but it had nothing to do with fighting the apartheid, the evil apartheid regime. It was now fighting a different battle. It was saying to the current president in power, Cyril Ramaphosa, we do not recognize you. And Cyril Ramaphosa is from a very small tribe. He's from the Venda. He's, he comes from the north of South Africa. Whereas in, the, in this coastal province, it's predominantly Zulu. So immediately the battle lines were drawn. It was almost as if we were in the battlefield of King Shaka. So what I'm understanding is that, you know, the protesting started as protection, uh, former President um, Zuma, and then it turned into this, you know, protesting and rioting. So let's get into the scope of, you know, what the violence was, because I don't think even the term rioting is sufficient to really capture the the full depth and breadth of the violence that took place this you know this past week what exactly what exactly happened and what forms of violence were taking place in the public spaces so initially when um, if you take at uh, 20 past 9 and i can even give you an example on the sunday which was uh, 11th of July. So it started on Saturday and Saturday there was masses of uh, protesters that went to some of the big warehouses in KwaZulu-Natal. Now, I need to paint some scenarios here. Um, in the apartheid government, you uh, okay, so in, in our country, because it's a democracy, people can choose to live wherever they, they, they want to. They're free to live in whichever society or community they want to. But because people were defined in certain areas, so the black community literally living townships, so they they were ghettoized into living in these particular areas because the apartheid government only gave them certain access to the city. And they had to come into the cities in order to work for the white, for the white community. And I'm going to have to speak in racial terms because that's how we kind of define ourselves in South Africa. You have the white community, you have the black uh, majority, uh, you have the Indian community and the colored community. And the Indian is the smallest in terms of the portfolio mix of South Africans. Uh, the majority is black, uh, you know, the, the black uh, uh, population group and um, the white community, you know, population group is about, I think, four five million. Um, and uh, you have the colored speaking community. Now, the word colored, I think you might have heard it the other day, but the colored uh, is used, uh, was a term and it is still used in this country between black and uh, the race between black and white. And also the Khoisan, which is the original tribe in Africa, and the slaves, the Malay slaves. So a lot of slaves came in 1652 with Jan van Rebek. He also brought Indian slaves as well at that time. So whilst we know 1860, the main Indians arrived in the in the you know the ships, the Truro, the Belvedere, etc. In 1652, they were in the Cape. And they were part and parcel of slaves, and they were all they, they sort of intermarried uh, with the white uh, community. That gave rise to the coloured community, and the coloureds were also disenfranchised uh, during the British rule as well as in the apartheid rule because the Afrikaner government wanted a kind of purest race, like what happened in Germany. Well, let's start, um, you know, looking at some of the 
types of violence that have happened. So there was certainly looting of places of business, arson, um, murder, um, focused on places of business. And then uh, it did turn into, you know, homes being targeted. So can you talk a little bit about that violence? Um, you know, what were the numbers of people coming and what areas were affected and what were the consequences? How are people rebuilding now? Yes, absolutely. So I think the, the critical thing to understand is that the Indians were uh, are pivoted in, in, our, in predominant uh, areas since the apartheid government. So Phoenix plays a pivotal role in, in, in this uh, particular unrest, as well as Chatsworth, Marion Hill, Pinetown, Hillcrest, uh, Peter Maritzburg. Uh, so these predominantly Indian areas have been affected significantly. So Indian, the Indian community or the predominantly Indian community is the buffer between the black townships as well as the white township. And they were strategically designed because in case of any event like this in the past, the Indian community ends up being the buffer. And that's exactly what has happened. So when the looting happened with big business in these massive malls, et cetera, as well as so it, it not only resulted in, uh, you know, damage to the shops, you know, breaking down of every possible, uh, you know, store to the point that my father even says when he went to the, you know, to the checker center, which was burnt down and he goes every day to go and buy bread. And for him, it was extremely shocking. They, they actually are going through trauma counseling now because of the fact that they, they, they couldn't understand that their shopping center would be would be in the state, and so you know there was nothing in the there was absolutely nothing the first time when the looting happened. But that night, Sunday night, when the explosions happened, the air was acrid. There was burning. There was you know the the the, the smell. It was it was akin to a war situation and people on the ground couldn't understand what happened. You know, I had a conversation uh, yesterday with um, a Hindu Sevika Samiti, uh, you know, a friend, Anita Ji, who was sharing with me, uh, you know, the events in, in Phoenix. And she says in that night, you know, they heard the sounds of the of the of the explosions or of and it, the ripple effect of what was going on. And they didn't know what to or, how to understand it, and uh, the same thing when my when my dad heard the sound of the of the explosion, he didn't know it was an explosion until next day. But they, the the air is tangible with that um, that uh, you know the, the smoke and the fire of, of what really uh, took place because it escalated within twenty four hours from looting to damage of property to ultimately you know killing people. Them. People are, are dead because of the stampede, because there are hundreds of people that took to the street. If you see the little video clip of Marion Hill, where the guy's, you know, actually videotaping what is happening, and he says they're coming, and it was 20 past nine, and they're running, and they, it's not just one or 10 or 30, it's hundreds of people running on the road. So, they didn't realize that, you know, it was in a state of uh, hysteria more than anything else, for, you know, for them to actually go and, and break things with such, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, the feeling of, of, of degradation was, was just huge. 
276 people since the 21st of July have died due to the unrest. 3,407 have been arrested by 18th of July. And the estimates of loss is 20 billion. You know, so it's it's huge. It's absolutely massive. And so what happened is when they finished damage, the properties and the buildings, the explosions went off. They walked through those areas into the residential areas, which particularly is um, from the informal settlements of Azraelisha and Bombay into Phoenix. So we have informal settlements outside every township. It's it's the state in Africa, it's a state here too. So wherever there's an Indian township outside, it will be an informal settlement. And we're not, a, you know, they ca- cannot be evicted. They used to be evicted in the past. That was, you know, a crime against humanity, etc. Now people are taking more and more advantage of these informal settlements. You find that in most, uh, you know, countries around the world. But here it was on the doorstep of the roads and on the doorstep of the shopping center. So you'll have a thin road, you'll have the township and you'll have, uh, you know, the shopping mall. So it's easy to cut across the road and go across the loot. So if you are following a leader, you will use whatever is the new means to actually go and destroy it and damage it. And when they entered the community of Phoenix in particular, that was when, uh, you know, um, yes, they didn't realize that the Indians will actually stand up to fight against uh, the perpetrators. I'm wondering when you use the term explosion, are you referring to were they made bombs? Like what were these explosions of? Were they homemade? Was it, you know, just the arson that was causing these large, large explosions? What was happening? So um, the material, I mean, you know, they're still investigating, but the, the, the thing is they, they were literally bomb explosions. So they used, uh, you know, whatever material they had, like um, arsenic or, you know, or, or chemicals, you know, that one would have that can actually make bombs. It's not unusual in the, in the uh, anti-apartheid movement, this was used a lot. I was a student of the struggle days in, in the 80s. You know, I was also arrested uh, you know, it's uh, not an impossible thing to actually cause uh, many explosions. But what is the the, fun, uh, the, the the unbelievable thing was that they actually looted the police stations and stole the guns. So they, they we have a country of such unrest that even the civilians that you see is uh, you know uh, you they may not have food but they have guns. Mm. So you mentioned that, you know, some of the cities that were affected were Phoenix, Chatsworth and others. These are all located in KwaZulu-Natal, right? The provincial, um, you know, uh, seaside um, area where a lot of Indians, a lot of Indians have um, settled because that's where they were brought when they were brought as indentured laborers. Yes. I want to focus a little bit of time on you know, why South Indian, Indian South Africans are being targeted. Um, we've seen some videos come in with rhetoric inciting violence against Indian South Africans, as well as Indian South Africans um, being hurt. Or, you know, in one video I saw, you know, um, there was an Indian man that was shot in the back of the head and the person taking the video, all they could say is, you know, Indian male shot in the back of the head. We don't know 
who shot him or when he was shot. Um, and just these gruesome videos. Why do you feel, you know, that there's this targeting of Indians and how, how did this develop from a protest against the arrest of president, former president Zuma? When uh, President Zuma was arrested on, you know, counts of corruption, uh, you know, there was a particular family that played a huge role in the in the corruption of the country. In fact, it was called state capture because they actually captured the state. They captured the defense force. They allowed an airplane to land in our, um, you know, Air Force base uh, to bring a party of uh, a family to have a wedding in this country. And no one will ever allow such a thing in any country in the world except, the, you know, our former president. So that's how they were able to have a huge influence. They were able to say which minister will be at which portfolio to that extent. And so the, the, the idea, the, the whole fight on the corruption happened for a, for a long time. Now, in this instance here, what we have found is there was massive incitement from the Zuma children, namely Duduzile Zuma Sambutla, who is allegedly amongst those that encouraged the violence, and, and Zuma's son as well on videos that went viral. Now, Duduzile's unverified Twitter, but you know, it's under her name, literally encouraged the protests and said, we will rebuild, we will recreate what we want in our way. So for me, that's, that plays a huge role as well. There's bitterness, there's bitterness against the president, there's bitterness against the current state. And it was a carefully orchestrated attempt to whip the masses into a frenzy of anarchy. It's typical of the time. If you take, if you look at, uh, you know, situations of anarchy from Stalin to, you know, to um, Europe and other places, you will see the same thing play out here. Now, the buffer community is the Indian community. And that's why you will always have a buffer community that will be the target to be deflected. So right now, the issues on racism from the Indian community, because the Indian community fought back in a war, because the police arrived late on the scene and the army was not deployed immediately, as you would have seen with the reports. So why was that? What was the difficulty in the police not being there on time? So these are the questions South Africans are asking themselves. And there's a very clear answer. The police themselves have been part and parcel of the Zuma Brigade for the longest time. But they have to align to the current presidency and they wanted things to play out to such an extent in order to cause the disruption in the country and for the and for Zuma to be free. But at the same time, to change the name of the game that we are saying will, will, is, is, is a massive. Uh, and what I'm going to say now is, is, is a huge thing. It, it's. For the longest time, the Indian community not only succeeded in business, education, uh, and and became uh, you know the, the played a pivotal role in the economic growth of this country, and they continue to do so. Um, remember, they are not the similar communities that you would find when people left India to go to America, etc., and would have created business. They started here with absolutely nothing. They came as indentured laborers. And you also had the merchants. So you had two levels. You had the merchants and you had the indentured laborers. But both of them, with the passage of time, 
achieved success based on their own value systems, et cetera, et cetera. And they also understood the nature of the community. The most important form of economic sustenance has been the market gardens. It is one of the key things in the country, grain, growth of vegetables. And, and KwaZulu-Natal provides that ample opportunity of land to grow sufficient vegetables for the country. So they were able to work on that. And the sugarcane plantations. Today, some of them are owners uh, of the plantations. In fact, one is a relative of mine, the border things. So they are well known in that field of knowing how to um, uh, create uh, jobs through the milling of sugar. So the, so the Indian community ensured the success of the middle class, but also fundamentally, the majority of the community is working class. There's a lot of different narratives that are developing from the um, violence that took place in light of all of the different violence that took place and all of the valences of the violence that, that culminated in the targeting of Indians in particular, um, which includes Hindus, Muslims, Christians, and those from other religious groups. There was a statement today from South African President Ramaphosa. And in, in that statement, he stated, quote, there is an attempt to present this as a sign of imploding race relations between African and Indian communities. Just as there were people who tried to exploit people's vulnerability and cause mayhem, there are those who want to present criminal acts in racial terms to serve their own purposes, end quote. So he seems to be wanting to present this as not a racial issue, yet it's very clear um, from conversations with those on the ground that it is, in fact, um, you know, Indians have been targeted and, and there are a lot of racial elements. So can you share your thoughts on that? And why would um, President Ramaphosa not want to paint this in racial terms? President Ramaphosa was one of the few people that was asked by President Nelson Mandela to push the economic agenda. He would have taken uh, become the vice pre the next president after him. But it was given to Thabo Mbeki and there were political uh, you know, reasons for that because Thabo Mbeki was in exile in England. He was not in exile on Robben Island like the other countries. So there's a sense of cadreship in South Africa, and I'm going to use that term. Uh, by the way, communism, terms of communism is used uh, quite loosely and um, very much part of uh, everyday conversation in South Africa. We don't separate uh, capitalism and communism too too quickly. So the socialist agenda was very clear from, from the onset. And uh, unfortunately, when uh, Cyril Ramaphosa moved into business, he pushed uh, the, you know, the capitalist agenda, which was not always uh, liked by the ANC leaders. So unfortunately, that became a huge, uh, you know, separation between him and other leaders, just uh, to give it a, a big context. He wouldn't want to paint the country in racial terms because he has huge levels of investment into the country that uh, will not come in if it's based on racial lines. And he knows he has lots more to lose than 20 billion that we've lost right now. It, for him, he, I think he's, and he's also completely stunned at the prospect of trying to rebuild KZN into what it was. It's going to take a, a very, very long time. The target, the Indian community is specifically targeted. 
And we are saying that because we have seen the level of hate and the level of violence that has emerged in the last few days. If you take specifically Monday, uh, you know, 12th of July, when the 2000 um, and five, you know, SAND of soldiers was deployed. They called it Operation Prosper, and it was simply just to go and find, you know, uh, the things that were looted. And they told the people in Phoenix, and this is eyewitness statements, we're not here to protect you. We are here to find the things that have been stolen. So protection of property rather than protection of people. Yes. And also they were deployed at government buildings. Now, government buildings are not under threat. Business was under threat. Small business was under, under threat. And small business that employed black people were under threat. So it's like casualties of war. But the bigger game is that they want a, we feel there's a sinister move in order to change the narrative of the Indian community being successful in this country. Indian South Africans were targeted during the violence, the civil unrest that happened in the past few weeks. Um, But now we're seeing news reports that Indian South Africans were perpetrators of violence. And in particular, um, this has come about in Phoenix, where there's a protest about the violence that took place. So Indians were, you know, victims and, and, now they're being understood as perpetrators. So how is this narrative shifting and what's at stake here for saying that who the, you know, whether or not Indians were victims or perpetrators during this violence? It's a huge uh, and, and a very important thing that has happened. What we've seen right now because of the, um, okay, uh, you know, we have 18 radio, main radio stations in the country. We have many community radio stations as well. And one of the biggest radio stations, uh, you know, is Isi Zulu uh, in, uh, in predominance. So you could see it's the largest listenership. It has the most reach. Uh, it's easy to influence. And it's easy to spread the false agenda. And the moment you get hold of a media in that way, it becomes very difficult to counteract unless, you know, you you have international pressure and you have a whole range of uh, uh, techniques in order to, you know, to change it. So Malema is from the EFF and he has consistently spread the issues about uh, Indian racism for a long period. He tried to win the vote card in the last elections on that. Uh, He was against the ANC on on a range of issues, citing the ANC to be this, you know, old uh, sleepy dog that's not able to rule the country effectively, uh, allowing other people to come in and to be champions of, uh, you know, certain categories of government, etc. And he has in particular uh, played a role against the previous Minister of Finance, Praveen Gordon. So we've seen that play out with the, with the Zondo Commission, et cetera, et cetera, over a period of time. And that same narrative is now immediately perpetuated with uh, the killings that, that, uh, and the violent killings that took place last week. So I've just painted a scenario of Saturday night, Sunday, Monday. So Saturday night when the people were not able to get protection from the police, they decided to protect their roads, their exits and, and entrances. And Konubia was one of the places that um, I may not have mentioned earlier that was very, very pivotal 
it is um, uh, it's on the highway, uh, and across the highway is a, is, is is a township. And the people went across there, looted and also destroyed massive, uh, you know, uh, uh, property. But in that same time, there were uh, um, people that were stampeded and they were killed. In the Phoenix area, they were people were not armed initially, but when they saw the people coming, and before the barricades were actually put down, uh, they had come to the residences. And they were destroying the, the you know, the, the people and, and, and there were massive, uh, you know, and there were fights that had taken place. So immediately the, the neighborhood security watch. And in fact, um, I got this information last night and it's not even in the public yet, that the neighborhoods formed neighborhood watches. Each road uh, or three, four roads in our Phoenix is obviously the largest, uh, one of the largest Indian, so-called majority Indian townships. Uh, so they decided to create neighborhood watches of three or four roads. So it started with the small area, then they report in one WhatsApp group. They, that same WhatsApp group reports to a bigger area of six roads. And the same WhatsApp group then reports to the to the bigger community. So they did it in tiers, T-I-E-R-S, uh, from Saturday night. And Sunday night, they realized that it's critical to have everyone on standby. So the security guard, the security companies, okay, so why we need security companies? South Africa, by and large, is a very violent society. So in, in my neighborhood, I live in Johannesburg, I have to have a security company that patrols our area. We have alarm systems, et cetera, et cetera. Everybody lives that way. And because we have been robbed, everyone somehow or the other has encountered this type of violence. So the security companies were doing their jobs, patrolling, et cetera, and they realized this is huge, not just the looting and the damage to property, but the level of arson, the level of explosion. So when they had come into the, uh, into the area and they saw that the, the, the intention was exceedingly uh, you know, out to kill, out to kill, literally. It was literally out to kill. They had to then create plans in order to safeguard the territory because so last night's witness account from Anita Ji, what they did. So the smaller tier group then got the mothers, the grandparents and the children and evacuated them. They then got uh, the patrols, the fathers and grandfathers and grandsons all helped the security companies some they, they don't know anything about using a gun some of them but they got all together with bats and you know uh, whatever they could find to help the security to form the guards at the exits and the entrance this was a collaboration between families and the security companies that were hired to protect specific neighborhoods yes yes and and the security companies are already there in existence anyway because they have to protect them against a crime and break-ins because we have a lot of robberies, as I said, and also violence because we've had murders, we've had rape, we've had all that before. But in this instance, it was a time, a ticking time bomb. It's literally, a t- in fact, right now they say they are a ticking time bomb because what the mothers and fathers are saying today, which is um, the 26th of July, is that they are only now 
starting to unpack what has happened in the last week. What happened in the last week was a reaction. They had to plan a strategy in order to counteract massive threat against their lives, Mm -hmm. their family lives, their children. They don't want to go to school, which is going to be opened on Thursday. Mm -hmm. Parents are now standing and they don't want to, not just because of the COVID, the fact that they have been threatened that their children are going to be killed if they go to school. So threats are still coming in on social media. They're still coming on little posters, etc. So people are worried. So they have written, there are open letters that has been written to the president. I think you might have seen one or two of them. The previous minister in the government was Minister Jay Naidu, who was in charge of the RDP. And, uh, you know, he's retired now. And he's written a letter to the president to say, hey, right now you've got to quell what's going on because it can go out of hand and it can be even worse. So there's fear that this violence, there will be a resurgence and the violence will continue. Absolutely. So even though the minister of, uh, you know, what is another shocker was the minister of defense, you know, Ayanda, who uh, first she says it was an insurrection, which is a huge, you know, violence against any society. And then she changed her, her mind with the, with, the, with the president because he doesn't, he wants to downplay the race card. He wants to downplay it because he knows he depends on the economic viability of the Indian community. He depends on the infrastructure set out by the communities in KwaZulu-Natal, white, black, and Indian and colored. So I'm saying it's across the board because all of them have businesses as well. And he knows the level of, um, you know, uh, if, if there's nothing, and if you put an Indian there, you'll have something, you know, very soon, very quickly, because uh, they have the, the the ability to grow and to build and to and to and to uh, to be stronger in, in 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 any situation. I think the Indian community this time have been uh, you know have been really uh, they they they've were completely shocked. They have to deal with the trauma uh, post traumatic stress disorder right now, and it's across the board. And even though the army increased. Uh, the deployment of 25,000. And that was only after massive tweets went out to the Minister of uh, External Affairs Ministry in India, uh, you know, in order to say, please help us. And those tweets not care, didn't come from one religious group or anything, even though the World Hindu Foundation did that. And we have, you know, uh, proof of that. But it was across the board. It was people saying we are not getting help. The police are not here. When the police finally arrived, they had pellets, rubber bullets. They didn't even have proper bullets because that was already stolen. And then when the army came, the army said, we're not here to protect you. So it's like, what's this double whammy, you know? I mean, even though Indians in particular were targeted, all communities were equally targeted. Those from, you know, as you said, so, you know, the terms black, white, um, colored groups, which, you know, I, I try not to use those terms, but I think they're um, the terms used in South Africa. So it's appropriate in these 
this context. Um, so, so you can say Pine Town is where the white communities were. So they were also, yes, because there were, you know, massive violence there, Marion Hill. You mentioned the World Hindu Foundation. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your role in the World Hindu Foundation and what the organization has done to respond to the violence uh, from the past few weeks as it was happening. And now that there seems to be a semblance of peace in the country. Right. So what uh, we, um, at the time when uh, the devastation, you know, started happening and, and you know, uh, the World in the Foundation immediately, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, re-looked at its resources and, you know, people on the ground to find out what was happening, is there support needed, etc. <clears throat> and also at the same time, contacted uh, the Ministry of External Affairs in India. In fact, we've written a letter immediately to the state president of South Africa, and it's on our Facebook page, to say to immediately stop the violence, to actually bring a sense of calm, and to stop it from aggravating it into any uh, racial lines, if it were. At the time when we wrote the letter, we had no idea that it was going to pivot towards a deflection of the truth. And that was to give, uh, you know, the, the the corrupt powers that be the opportunity to do uh, whatever they wanted to do and use the Indians as a, a in a process of racism. And which was really, which is really, really sad because they permitted Indians to be the racists, the Indians to be the killers. And yet uh, that is not the case at all. The Indians sought to protect themselves at the time that was needed. So it was a, it was clearly a war situation that we had uh, here. Um, I think the, 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 what the World Hindu Foundation did immediately is to ask the intervention of the state president, an open letter, and to, and to call for people uh, to call for calm because we had uh, candle lighting and dia lighting uh, programs immediately to get everybody to just calm down, pray, get the neighborhoods involved, you know, to, to, to quell the anger and the resentment that was building up in these communities because it could have been worse. And we felt that, you know, there was a sinister motive to allow it to become worse. And because the Indians stood up, everybody was taken aback because they didn't realize that the Indians would do that. They thought they would be pretty soft targets, just, you know, railroad people do whatever is needed and, and, and move on. So it didn't happen that way at, at one level. The other level is that the Indians then stood up and started clearing up uh, you know, on the Tuesday because that is part and parcel of their lives. They, 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 they're not here to destroy. They, they want to rebuild. They want to be part and parcel of the South African ethos. Many of us are fourth, fifth, sixth generation, and this is the land that they know. Older people have lived here and grew up here. So, you know, it, they are calling for a space of a togetherness and just. And I think the issue around justice is the critical thing because uh, they feel they've not heard. Even in mainstream media, they, they, their voices are not heard as, uh, you know, as effectively as it should. Thank you so much for that. And, and, and before we, you know, end our conversation today, I have to ask the question, all of the civil unrest is coming on the heels of COVID-19. And there's been a lot of economic degradation around the world um, because of 
the effects of COVID-19, people having to stay at home, businesses closing. Do you think that COVID-19 has had an effect in this civil unrest? And if so, what, how much of an effect exactly has it had, do you think? Um, I think differently. I think, you know, there's two things. One, the, 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 uh, when the civil unrest happened, you know, they had to stop all the vaccine um, distribution uh, to the areas and to the to the people who needed it because the government rolled out the vaccines according to ages, so over 60, then 50, et cetera. And immediately that stopped. For those few days, it, it stopped immediately. And that was absolutely significant because it meant life or death of people. And also the impact that we're now going to feel in the next coming weeks. And that's going to be really, really critical. So whilst the president has reassured the country that we're back on track, we now have to push forward. We are now seeing the increase in the number of statistics in KwaZulu-Natal. So the civil unrest actually affected COVID and the number of people affected by COVID, um, which is is a very important point. I wasn't even thinking along those lines. I was more asking about the effects that, you know, the economic downturn around the world because of COVID had on the civil unrest, because there, I, I feel that a lot of the um, protest evolved out of economic frustration. And certainly there's many different issues at play. There's racial tension, tension, economic frustration. Um, there's that um, fomenting of violence coming from the top tiers of the government. Um, so many issues at play. Uh, certainly the, the economic frustration uh, because of, you know, the lack of jobs, lack of access to basic resources um, must have played a role. Completely. Yes. So I think it's a huge point. It's a very big point. And as I've mentioned earlier on, we're a very unequal society. Over 50% of the population live below poverty lines. And the Indian community has been this um, buffer. Now, 40% of the Indian community used to work in factories. They owned the factories. They were also workers in the factory. And when the um, you know, uh, imports of Chinese goods, et cetera, came in, many of them lost uh, jobs. In fact, you know, literally thousands of them. But they created small business and small industries and became very, very successful. Now, you know, in democracies around the world, what sustains the democracy? It's the growing middle class. It's the growing working class. If you don't have those two uh, formidable groups, you lose sight of a democracy because nobody really you know, bothers with the very rich, et cetera. So they, in turn, create the opportunity for the very poorer classes to have access. And access becomes critical. Infrastructure becomes critical. What happened in this Black weekend last week was that the highways were blocked. Food could not get imported into the province. Food couldn't get exported, you know, get out of the province into other places. You you saw all the shopping malls. They were absolute. All the shelves were empty. People couldn't get food. So the World Hunger Foundation, as with other groups, played a role in giving hampers to people on the ground to everybody. It doesn't matter who they were. You know, you had all these communities come to give bread, milk, food. Uh, you know, in, in in the last few weeks. In fact, we had to. We got people who chartered flights to get to KZN. Uh, some people came out of there on flights and some people, you know, then took uh, important food, uh, you know, and we, we, we still have to do that in, in the next, uh, you know, a few weeks. 
Now, the economic situation of COVID was at its worst. Our ratings in the country was growing lower and lower. Uh, you know, the Moody ratings, right? Uh, which gives the country its, um, the GDP ratings. So it was even lower. And with the COVID situation, you know, we were just really at the bottom end. So these small businesses helped to create this um, uh, economy, even in the townships, in the black townships, was also growing in that way. But the majority of people have been completely disenfranchised. And they, you know, it, they, it, they almost let out frustration upon frustration at every level. Angry at low infrastructure, no access, no ability to, to get even, they didn't even bother with wearing masks, you know, things like that. Uh, basic sanitation, it, it took so long to even get um, the World Health Organization rules, you know, going out to people, etc. So it's those things that have played a huge role as well. And, you know, it just really started crippling the economy. And that's why the president sees investment in South Africa as a big point in order to start driving one area of activity so that it, you know, replicates with the rest of the country. He can't afford this. He really can't afford it. Well, lots to unpack in the civil unrest that's been happening uh, recently in South Africa. Thank you so much, Yashika Ji, for joining us today. Last word, what do you want the world to know about South Africa? And what are your hopes for South Africa moving forward? So in the words of Nelson Mandela, who said South Africa belongs to all who live in it. And all South Africans want peace and progress but they want it with respect and dignity. And they want each other to be acknowledged in that way. I think the, in order for us to reflect upon the ideals of our constitution, we want to revitalize and rebuild our country as a very strong community. So there's a lot of engagement that needs to happen. We know there's a lot of fear, but people are breaking down that, you know, those barricades in their mind and also physically in order to reach the other. We have to do that. The building has to take place. We have been the so-called model nation of 1994. And we want, you know, uh, that to live on. I had the great uh, fortune to meet Nelson Mandela a few times. In fact, we had, um, you know, breakfast with him. And he said to us, our duty is the youth. And our duty is to ensure that we bring the youth on board of the country. So, you know, we, we take that to heart because they are our forefathers. And we and every South African citizen respects that and, and knows that. Well, that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please take a minute and leave us a nice five-star review. It's how you can help the show get discovered by more listeners. You can help ensure that more of these get made by making a donation to HAF at www.hindoamerican.org slash donate. And before you go, a quick message. The Hindu American Foundation proudly supports We Can Do This, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services nationwide COVID-19 and vaccine education campaign. Our community has been hit hard by COVID-19, and many of us need help in getting educated about how we can get vaccinated. Our organization is working hard to ensure our community has access to important information in our fight against COVID. Learn about COVID-19 vaccinations and get help scheduling your vaccination at vaccines.gov. We can do this. We can do this.